This is the 966 episode 108. Hello, Mr. Richard Wilson. How are you? Hey, Mr. Lucien Ziegler. Lucien. Lucien. <laughs> How's it going? Good. Very good. We had a we uh, we get to visit, you know, several times a week, um, if not more. And we just had a nice visit yesterday with uh, with our guest this week. And I'm just I just. You know, we were going over, so we we sort of go over. Right? These are the episodes, up, 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 upcoming episodes. And it's so fun to see it like that because then you go, my goodness, this is a whole range of really interesting people doing really interesting stuff. And I get very excited. So anyway. Yep, 108 episodes, which is kind of... Kind of wild. And as you mentioned, we have a good one this week coming up. We have Mr. Mansour Al-Zahab and Zainab Kosarisalu coming to talk about the regional headquarters program in Saudi Arabia, a topic of keen interest to many of our listeners and viewers, as many are either working for corporations that are considering relocating to Saudi Arabia or already have as their regional HQ. So <clears throat> really good discussion and, and pretty complex issues. So we as always, bring in the experts when we get to that that uh, junction. So it's great. This was a dense conversation. They had a lot of good stuff, really good stuff, and 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 it's a, it's so topical. You know, it's it it's it's for real. You know, in a few months, so it's timely. Yep, indeed. And um, you know, we like to begin each episode with a little bit of feedback that we've gotten. And Richard, I got this piece of feedback when I was in Riyadh, and I thought about it as somebody from somebody you know as well. Um, but I thought about it, and actually, it makes a lot of sense. This person is directly in the business of media and broadcasting, um, and they mentioned, you know, for new listeners, if and we have new listeners every single episode, I and mean, we technically have to have new listeners every episode. So welcome if you're new here, uh, because our numbers keep going in one direction and it's up. Um, but basically, the feedback was every now and then, if you can kind of describe what you're doing on the podcast and what the segments are. You know, our re regular listeners already know, but and we have a pretty set format here we do every week. But basically, if we can sort of describe what we're doing with this podcast and how the format works so people feel a little bit more comfortable on their first go around here. And so, as you know, again, as our regular listeners know, we start off, we say hello to each other, talk about what's coming up, and then we each discuss our one big things. And those are not necessarily the biggest thing that happened for Saudi Arabia in during the week, but they are big to us and worthy of extra sort of focus before we get to our special guest, which we have about 95% of the time of episodes, we have a special guest. And then we finish with a segment called Yella, which is just sort of meant to be a survey of six top interesting, important stories that happened in Saudi Arabia over the previous week, sort of a newsy segment with some reaction. So that's sort of the format. So you get a lot of info, you get a good conversation, and you have a little bit of a deeper dive into some topics which rotate each week. So there you go. Now you have been indoctrinated into the 966. <laughs> so welcome to all new listeners and, and hello to everybody that's been with us, some from the very beginning, which is super cool. You know, that media expert, and you haven't named a name, but I'm guessing a name, it, it probably would be useful for him to ask him to do an assessment of us as co-hosts. It, it was a female Mr. Wilson, oh, was actually, it? yes. Oh. All right. <laughs> so so case, I have you guessing it, now. Yeah, I know exactly. You have to tell me afterwards. Yeah. No, but the, the one I'm thinking about is I thought about that, but I'm afraid to ask because I'm afraid to know. You know, Indeed. I can't imagine if he were to dig in on, on all my shortcomings. Uh, yes. If I yes. ever want to do this again. 
And we like to ask permission before we use people's names on this show or that are listeners or that are not in the news, as it were, just because we are very courteous. Uh, and I did not ask this person if I could read this feedback on the air. So, yeah, this this woman, I should say, now that now that we've actually gotten down, you know, you get we did out half of the. Yeah, exactly. We're halfway to fit, figuring out who it is. But yeah. Um, so I just think that was kind of good feedback. And, you know, we are so into this, Richard. We do this every week. So it's like we just need to sometimes step back and say, yeah, like, you know, welcome. <laughs> so, Absolutely. I think that's legit. Uh, yep, yeah. Um, yeah. Get going. What's speaking of getting going, shall we? What's your one big thing this week, Richard? Um, it's uh, a thing that's sort of newsy, but it's mostly for me, it's representative. Um, you know, we've been covering Saudi for a while and you know there's a playbook often especially with with pif initiatives you know you sort of put out something to um define a new regulatory environment uh then you establish and this is you being pif then you establish a sector champion and then you you know provide incentives to get that champion moving and and then induce others to come in and try and build up the private sector, try and, try and uh, attract foreign direct investment. And it's, so we've seen this over and over and I, and I, and I think it was interesting. And one of the comments that uh, came up during our conversation with Mansoor and Zainab was the HQ program was announced in 2019 to be, you know, effective January, 2024. So that's a, that's, that's basically about a four year window. Um, and about midway through that, people started to realize this was a term that came up, well, this is real. So, you know, something's going to happen. They're very serious about this. So we all need to be responsive. So what I want to talk about a little bit is the military industrialization initiative and specifically GAMI, which is the, uh, you know, general authority for military industries and SAMI, which is a Saudi Arabian military industries. Both of these entities were established in the summer of 2017. So that's six years ago now. And you can see the playbook. So let's talk about GAMI first, because GAMI was established to essentially uh, set strategies and policies for developing all, you know, activities and performance in terms in the industry. Uh, manage military procurement, you know, operational contracts for arming the uh, the military, and and so it's you know since its establishment in 2017, it's issued 300 and close to 350 permits, close to 200 licenses for facilities. Uh, it also founded the Saudi Arabia uh, World Defense Show, which we know has had their their second iteration is coming up, correct? Or did they have their second iteration? The second they had iteration, second iteration is, last yeah, year, next month or next year, yeah, early next year, yep. Yeah. Uh, and um, and it's a big deal, huge deal. All right, so so GAMI, as you can see, is sort of the regulatory uh, entity. SAMI is kind of the sector champion. All right, Saudi Arabian military industry, SAMI, established again that summer of 2017. Its goal is to be among the top 25 defense companies in the world by 2030. It aims to support localizing 50% of Saudi Arabia's total government defense spending. SAMI has five divisions, aerospace, land, sea, advanced electronics, and defense systems. 
Its goals, again, reducing the country's reliance on foreign purchases of defense products, developing cutting edge technologies, manufacturing, you know, a constant theme, manufacturing world-class products and uh, providing, you know, essentially developing a military, being the point of the spear in developing a military manufacturing industry. So let's talk about SAMI first. So six years after its development, after its establishment in 2017, it claims to have a backlog of over 10 billion in contracts. Now this is impressive. And and because in in 2020, Sammy's annual revenue was just 20 million. By 2021, it was 690 million. And by the middle of last year, they had contracts worth more than $2.9 billion. And these are awarded to local companies during the, uh, well, a lot of them were awarded during that last World Defense Show last summer. Um, so, and also they're claiming a localization percentage of close to 15%. So of all these contracts. So they're very actively pursuing, you know, the project and the contracting and the manufacturing side of this. And they're doing that a couple of ways. They're signing, you know, many, a, a bunch of joint ventures. So they have joint ventures with Novantia, L3 Harris, Thales, um, Airbus, Boeing, Lockheed Martin. It, so, so you know, they're 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 joining with significant defense entities to help boost the local uh, local environment. Um, one of the interesting things about Sammy is they've essentially become a roll-up firm. So, existing in Saudi were defense industries, and Sammy. So, you know, twenty nineteen. They acquired Aircraft Accessories and Components Company, which is a large maintenance and repair service provider, again, Saudi. Uh, they purchased Advanced Electronics Company, which was always sort of the, the, the bellwether of the Saudi defense industry prior to, to the establishment of SAMI. They rolled up in 2022 the Saudi Rotocraft Support Company. So they're essentially... <laughs> Like I said, spearheading the manufacturing development, you know, partnering aspect of it. And uh, they seem to be very active, seem to be making real progress. They have challenges. They obviously, they have competitors. Um, they're struggling with things like um, staffing, you know, technicians, you know, how to train military technicians. And again, in classic EIF <clears throat> way, uh, they see the shortage on the, on the application on the engineering side, the technician side, the technical side. So they've established um, a number of, of uh, academies to train military technicians, sort of vocational schools, but specifically for training military technicians. Another, another problem is financial because locally manufactured goods tend to be more expensive. All right. And so again, you see the government, in this case, in the form of GAMI, and we'll come back to GAMI, has invested, has spent close to $1.4 billion in 21 and 22 on incentives. So, you know, yes, we know it's a bit of a loss leader, but what's important to us in the long term, it'll become economic over time. Uh, so that's the SAMI side of it. The GAMI side of it, and this was actually the, what, what prompted me to do this one, uh, they just announced just this week uh, a launch of several investment opportunities in the kingdom's military industry sector. And we see this coming back. So you, 
here's Gammy, the regulatory. Here's Sammy, the active agent. Gammy is now have now launched some in in concert with the Ministry of Investment and specifically the Invest Saudi platform, a series of incentives really to try and induce foreign direct investment and to try and attract defense partners. So you see the playbook unfolding like it so often does, but in this case, the military sector. So, so to, to cut it short, but I also think this is interesting. The they they they're. they're they're promising 10 opportunities in areas that have dual civilian and military application. And those opportunities are uh, phase one, uh, batteries, wires, cables, harnesses and fiber optics, uh, also mechanical transmission components, aircraft propellers and components, pipes, tubes, and rigid tubing. Also, brakes, axles, tires, and track components, as well as electronic circuit components, pumps, electric motors, and valves. What I like about this is that's just basic stuff. They're not, they're not shooting for marquee things. They're not, you know, trying to build a, a, a you know, a fifth generation fighter. Uh, you know, they are working at the, at the basic of it. You know, let's build an industrial base. Let's create some sort of technical expertise and an employment sort of uh, core that we can expand out from. Uh, let's enter in JVs at the most, you know, you know, the, the, not the simplest, but very simple manufacturing processes. And in this way, we'll start from the bottom and build up. So anyway, it, uh, like I said, this was prompted by the GAMI announcement of these 10 new areas. Uh, but I thought it was useful to hark back to that summer of 2017 when all this was started. And like the regional HQ program, you can see that this idea started six years ago is becoming more and more real. And it's gonna be interesting to watch. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see what kind of development they can they can achieve in terms of not only manufacturing, but also employment. So um, that's my one big thing this week. You mentioned that they're <clears throat> beginning with sort of getting these basic sort of I don't want to say simple because it's not simple and no manufacturing is simple, but basic parts. And that is what they're focusing on now, not fifth generation fighters or anything else like that. And what's interesting is Gammy's CEO is a gentleman by the name of Ahmed bin Abdulaziz al Ahli, who has been governor of Gammy since March 2019. But he's also his background is with SABIC. Um, he worked as um, at Ju at Jubail Industrial City, one of the largest industrial cities on the planet. We've discussed that in our episodes discussing Bechtel's role in Saudi Arabia. So he sort of has a background on this, and obviously, as a civilian, he is in a military leader, and and you know that is sort of common. Uh, he is with Gami with Sammy. I believe it's uh, Walid Abdul. Ab Abdul Khalid is the CEO, a gentleman, Richard, you and I both know um, and, and have worked with in previous events that we've done here in the US. So they have they have very capable executives at the very top. I think just and I, I think that was a really good one big thing because it's good to really crystallize and understand how this is developing, where they are, this difference between Sami and Gami. And I think what's really interesting is part of the reason why this is a huge focus for Saudi Arabia is not necessarily for security and defense. That is a reason. But the other reason is because they're spending a lot of money on foreign military equipment acquisitions and training. It's like a massive part of their budget. And they're still going to have to do that going forward. But 
money spent developing the industry locally does create jobs and stimulate the economy, but it also saves money on equipment that you may be buying overseas. And this building a defense sector is like building a an automotive sector. You just cannot do it overnight. You may not even be able to do it over a decade. It, it takes a lot of time. And so it's what, what we're seeing, I think the takeaway from your one big thing, at least my takeaway from your one big thing is that they are patiently and strategically doing this the right way. It does take time. I will note too that, you know, looping in investment, you're looping in Khaled Alfala, uh, looping in manufacturing and industry, you're sort of looping in Bandar al who is their Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources. These industries are all very connected. And, um, you know, that's just... That's just sort of interesting that they're they're really prioritizing that. You saw last year, maybe mid last year, and I think it was um, when was this? Twenty twenty two. That um, Lockheed Martin said it would invest a billion dollars in manufacturing in Saudi Arabia, and you know that's part of that is to sort of tap into these opportunities. Saudi Arabia wants to scale that out. They want to get more of that in the mix. And, you know, that's foreign investment into the military sector. So, you know, Khaled Al-Fala is involved. You have manufacturing, you have Bandar Al-Qaif and Osama Zamal and the guys at the Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources. And then you have Gami and Sami. So a lot is happening in this sector. It's it's huge. You can see the Gami and Sami buildings when you're driving in from the Saudi, from the Riyadh airport in Saudi Arabia. It's a massive sort of near the Riyadh front area, but they are huge. And yeah, I mean, this is a big, it's a big focus for the kingdom. It is. And, uh, you know, speaking of a couple of points you made, yes, it, it supports, it aims to localize 50% of Saudi Arabia's government defense spending by 2030. You know, that's, that'd be a huge savings, you know, take away the technology, technological achievements that, you know, you, you detain the, the skills, you know, upskilling, the jobs created, you know, the defense capability, you know, just that is of value. The other thing is on this GAMI thing is they very pointedly said these, these 10 things have, you know, most of them have civilian and military applications. So it, it, it it, it, you know, I, I like these things because, again, so much of when we started out on this, it's like, what on earth is going on? Is there a plan? And there is a plan. And when you look back a little bit and you get, a, you know, get to some perspective of distance and time, you see there's a plan. And, and uh, that's very reassuring because you and I are both trying to be, you know, appropriately skeptical on announcements and goals and, you know, stated achievements and that sort of thing. Because because they tend to be glowing. Uh, what we want to do is come back and look at it where it is in the implementation, but it's clear that they have a plan and it's clear they're moving along the timeline on this plan. And mm-hmm. so anyway, as I said, the GAMI announcement, uh, which is again, part of the plan, which is all right, we're going to make up these sectors. We're going to provide some incentives. We're going to make it more attractive to, to uh, investment is all part of the plan. And you can see this like almost sequential playbook in, in sector after sector after sector. It's yep. really interesting to see this one in the military one. Yeah, I think we've earned the right to be a little bit skeptical, Richard, as we did not start focusing on Saudi Arabia when Vision 2030 was launched, when they actually started really following through on everything. But before that, there was some times when maybe they didn't follow through, but the announcements were massive. <laughs> so uh, we but, just learned a little bit that, you know, hey, let's be yeah, a little exactly, analytical but, about this. Yeah. <laughs> but even with Vision 2030, I mean, they're masters of the glitzy launch. Um, you know, so so you see that and you go, OK awesome 
now let's see, uh, you know, how they put it into practice or how they're going to achieve or implement this. And, and so it's always good to be a little skeptical. And I'm, I'm pleased for the most part, you know, we always say over and over again, that's not going to be 100%, not going to hit 100% of everything, anything. Um, but it's nice to see that there seems to be a rigorous uh, approach based on a strategy and a playbook in most of these initiatives. I cannot believe that we, that this is, that is essentially the theme, the theme for my one big thing. And you're going to, you're going to realize it when I'm talking about it. And it, we don't, we do not coordinate on these one big things. We let each other know what we're doing and, and sort of discuss it. We always are discussing these issues anyway, behind the scenes. So it's sort of, you know, but we didn't coordinate this. And sometimes there's synergies that hook up in these episodes and it's just like, <laughs> wait, that is amazing. We're on the same wave. Like I just want to add to sort of, um, round out the segment, the World Defense Show with the theme Equipped for Tomorrow is February 4th through 8th, 2024, and uh, will showcase the future of defense through technological developments <clears throat> from around the globe. But these are huge events. I think I'm going to try to go this year. Uh, we will see. But um, yeah, and, and as you know, Richard, these events are so big that they have sort of their own like area in Riyadh. Like yeah. this is outside of the city and there's like- There's a you dedicated know, exhibition there's a, Yeah, space. there's like a, you know, you look <laughs> at like street signs on the highway and it's like, Damam, you know, Al-Allah, and then it's World Event Show as, as if it's like its own city <laughs> and it is. So um, yeah, that, that'll that be a big, that might be their biggest event outside FII, maybe even bigger, I actually don't know on that. And if you missed it, FII is coming up this coming week. We did a segment on it two weeks ago, which actually just aired on our YouTube channel yesterday, even though it was the audio version. So I'm well, a little I, I caught up on FII stuff. FII is trying to trim down a little bit. So I, I'm thinking the World Defense Show is probably the big, the big, you know, has got that, that, uh, that you know, award of being the largest uh, exhibition. Yeah. Yeah. Should be a sight to see. My one big thing this week. Goldman Sachs, that Goldman Sachs, the 154-year-old financial services behemoth, maybe the most recognizable name in banking and financial services in the world, and the second largest investment bank by revenue in the world behind only J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs published an article earlier this week entitled, How Saudi Arabia is Investing to Transform Its Economy. The article highlighted how Saudi Arabia's focus on diversifying its economy beyond oil is showing results. The piece discusses a little bit about the kingdom's national investment strategy, a plan to transform its economy through additional support for innovation, incentives to boost private sector contributions and targeted support for strategic sectors. Analysts estimate that the that around $1 trillion, part of the overall estimated NIS investments of $3.3 trillion, could be spent through the end of the decade on preliminary investments in six specific sectors which Goldman Sachs research identifies as areas that are benefiting from increased investment and are likely to drive a quote, CapEx super cycle through the end of the decade. And those six sectors are, and will sound familiar to our regular listeners as they are frequent topics on this podcast, clean tech with Saudi Arabia planning to close, to add close to 60 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity and two to three gigawatts of nuclear energy capacity by 2030. With an investment estimate of 206 billion, <clears throat> you have mining, uh, minerals, and metals total investment estimate 170 billion. 
transportation and logistics, uh, 150 billion digital transformation, 147 billion upstream energy, 245 billion downstream energy, 100 billion. And Goldman Sachs sort of describes some of the investments specifically in these six sectors. And so it kind of goes into that a little bit. We're going to share, of course, a link to this report. It's publicly available on Goldman Sachs' website. And it's just it's just sort of an interesting look and, and an interesting perspective. And I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a second. The report's author, Goldman Sachs research analyst Faisal Al-Azma, notes that in addition to the progress made, he said, quote, we also expect more strategies and announcements as initial targets are met, supported by further technological breakthroughs across sectors. The report does not does go into greater details on what the NIS is, how it works, and other programs related to it, like Sharik, a program we've discussed on this podcast, a 2021 program that aims to increase domestic investment made by listed and non-listed private sector companies to $1.3 trillion by 2030. Al Asma concludes the post for Goldman Sachs research with this quote: since the launch of Vision 2030 and in 2016. Saudi Arabia has made meaningful strides in growing the non-oil economy through various developments and investments across strategic economic sectors. Investment plans are likely to develop further in tandem with technological progress and availability over time as sector strategies are finalized. So that's the report. It's from Goldman Sachs. And you know maybe the word milestone is somewhat overused these days. But if Vision 2030 is like a long, challenging hype up, hike up a summit with the end being a diversified economy and at the top you have a worldview for Saudi Arabia that is impressive, then I think this report and the reality it discusses, more importantly, is sort of like a milestone on that journey. The reforms of Vision 2030 have not been easy, nor have they been inexpensive, and it is an uphill climb to the finish, just as it was at the start. I mean, if you're on this hike, this metaphorical hike, you're turning around at this point in your Saudi Arabia and you're seeing a view that looks very different than when you started. The view when Saudi Arabia started and launched this journey up the mountain was at the base of the mountain. Naysayers and doubters were on the same level as Saudi Arabia saying they can't make it, they shouldn't start, doubting the path that they were taking. Those voices are now below you, still on the ground, still probably doubting, but are now farther away and definitely way below Saudi Arabia at this point on its journey. And this is the point in a hike or a run when you can use your progress as validation and find a second wind, continue ahead, skip the chance to rest, take a and and skip a chance to take a breather and push forward. And this is a moment where Saudi Arabia can look at the progress and feel good about it, direction that it's on, and use that as fuel to keep going. Because, you know, Richard, they're halfway through this thing. And what Goldman Sachs is saying in this report is that it's working, but there's more to go and they need to keep going. And the hill ahead is just as steep as it was as they were just on. Um, you know, it's just important you take these sort of milestones. And <clears throat> again, this case is a, a Goldman Sachs research report. <clears throat> Excuse me, I don't know why this keeps happening, highlighting your progress <laughs> and keep going forward. And so you take this report and you sort of step back, put it in the context of the Crown Prince's interview with Fox just a few weeks ago, recently, where he talked about what they have done in Saudi Arabia, but they also he also discussed where they're going. And you kind of have to feel pretty optimistic about the direction. It's not over, uh, but the direction is is in the right direction. They are definitely going forward. They are looking back a little bit and saying, hey, we've got some progress here. And, you know, this report really crystallizes and highlights that. And I also say, you know, as an American and <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a we are friends to Saudi Arabia. We study this country. We 
like it. We both are fortunate to have many Saudi friends, um, but we are both Americans. And the diversification of Saudi Arabia's economy and the modernization of its society is absolutely in America's best interest, in my opinion. And just think about the alternative. These are reforms that are, you know, the United States has encouraged Saudi Arabia to make for years and decades. And now you have a major U.S. investment bank, maybe the marquee U.S. investment bank in the world, in a research note saying these reforms are happening and they're continuing and they're working. So it's just cool. I mean, we've done you know, segments like this before, but you just read this and it's, you step back from it and say, man, this is kind of something. These Vision 2030 is working. The diversification is underway. There's more to go, but it's kind of, things are trending in the right direction for Saudi Arabia right now. And it's, it's, it's good to see. And I, I just encourage them to keep going. Um, yeah, I get, I get, the, I get the same thing over here, I think. I think it's the um, fall sort of throat uh, sponge. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so many thoughts. The first one is that was very uplifting. Yeah, you know, a sermon, you know. <laughs> have, you, have, you, have you considered a Peloton trainer career? I, you know, I have. I have considered that. I need to get a Peloton, right? <laughs> Probably need to work out a little more. <laughs> <laughs> but it's in there. It's absolutely in there. Yes. Um, I am. Um, it is a very, it is a very, um, it, it is a very good article and it is and we you know since we're so deep in this every day it's none of it's new but like you say you know it's it's meaningful when a goldman sachs says it um and i do want to do a shout out to the 966 uh we did a one big thing on the national investment strategy in december 2021 so that was one of our earliest one big things. I only offer that because this is, you know, we've been on this for a long time and it's a big deal. And, you know, it includes, you know, that national investment strategy has goals of $3.3 trillion. 1.3 of that is from the Sharik program, which is the private sector involvement. Um, you know, there are people who have signed up for that. We'll see if they get there. A big deal is $480 billion or 15% of this from foreign direct investments. And that's the area where they need to see some more progress. And, and I will say on the, on the, on the PIF and, you know, it's committing 800 billion, but this is folding into a conversation we had last week about how pleased I am. And I think we both are that in this, um, in this year of a projected budget deficit of 1.2%, it hasn't slowed their spending. They're still just going at it real hard because they believe in it and they think it's required now. And, and so anyway, all these, all these things all sort of fold in together, which is very encouraging. And I would say one last thing, and this is not, it's an observation, but it's, and it's, it's because it's a fact when we say halfway to 2030, you know, chronologically, it's a fact, but, Realistically, as we're going up that mountain, that metaphoric mountain, um, it doesn't stop at 2030. 2030 is just a waypoint, you know. And, and to be honest, for Saudis, it's probably like a staging point on on uh, on a Himalayan, you know. It's that you know, it's that like another base camp or it's you a know, base yeah. camp, you know. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is you know, 2030 has been the mark, but because you have to you have to put a mark. Mm -hmm. 
but so much of their stuff is going to be going well beyond that. New things are going to be introduced, you know, later in this decade that, you know, the terminus or the projected terminus will be 2040 or whatever. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right. We're, we're halfway through Vision 2030, but you see Saudi Arabia like upgrading their goals for tourists from 100 million to 150 million. You see them going, okay, this is the glide path we're on. This is the trajectory we want to see. But, you know, we're just not cutting it off at 2030. It's going to go well beyond that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the mountain is not a stationary mountain, but at the top of the mountain, there's a volcanic sort of uh, outcropping <laughs> that creates a bigger mountain as it goes. But still, you you have to get up to the mountain. You have to go up the mountain to get to that new mountain to climb. I think this is the point where the show goes off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the... the um, I, I agree. I mean, you know, as a, as a mo new motivational speaker and Peloton instructor, <laughs> I just, the reason why I feel positive when I read this is because it, as you noted, it is Goldman Sachs. I mean, it is a brand name saying this, this isn't a local English language newspaper that is saying this, everything's going great. I mean, this is like <laughs> a bank that is, that would absolutely say things are not going well if they weren't. And so, you know, Richard, we sort of take a we, we have a view of Saudi Arabia that is, I think, maybe more open-minded than a general American audience is. And that's, I think, what makes a podcast popular is more people are getting curious about it. But we wouldn't be this positive back in 2016 or 2015. We wouldn't take an, an unnecessary, unnecessarily positive view. And we are somewhat critical when they, we, they do things and we think maybe that's not in their best interest, but we also understand that, you know, we're on the outside looking in, but you just sort of read this and you're like, man, they're, they're Goldman Sachs is saying like, this thing's on the right track. So keep climbing up the mountain folks, you know, don't stop and, and smell the roses. Keep yeah, going. Um, you know, I've been, I first went to Saudi in the eighties. I certainly was interested in the region before then my dad worked the region. Um, in Africa. And obviously uh, I've lived, worked there and, and we've been involved in it and paid a close attention to it. And I think we have a pretty good grasp of many aspects of it. And so far as Americans can have, um, I can say without a doubt that the vision 2030 is the best narrative Saudi Arabia has ever had. And that when we talk about it, it's, it's, you know, as I've said before, I think we both agree, you know, the timing of the 966 is perfect because the story, the Saudi story has gotten really interesting and more diverse, more active, you know, you know, the topic flow is greater. Everything is, everything is, is moving at a faster pace. And so much of it is of a more positive nature. So mm -hmm. easily vision 2030 is the best narrative that Saudi Arabia has ever had in my experience. Completely agree. And they just have to keep it going. Um, yes. And you know what? You know what they have to do? Sorry to interrupt. But it's something I, I actually mentioned this. I'm not going to, I can't even give too much information. But after a, a major crisis some years ago, uh, a senior Saudi, uh, you know, reached out for commentary and advice and, you know, uh, and a bunch of, a bunch of other little blather that I'm sure I provided. One of the things I said, and the most important thing I said, look, you know, you just need to do the work. And that is the work of Vision 2030. Just do the work, you know. You know, you forget about the atmospherics, forget about the reporting, forget about the judgment or the perceptions. 
if you do the work that is inherent in Vision 2030 and the National uh, NTP, National Transformation Program, if you do the work, good things will happen. And they're doing the work. Absolutely, they're doing the work. Yep, and the work will speak for itself as well. Yeah, I mean, you exactly, know, so. and that's, that's what you do. So we're mm-hmm. doing the work. This is all we really need to say. Agreed. Shall we? Let's get to we our shall. really good conversation with Mansur Al Zahab and Zainab Kosari Salu. Really good discussion about Riyadh, uh, excuse me, uh, the regional HQ program for Saudi Arabia. It's just, <laughs> just awesome. Enjoy. We are pleased to welcome on to the 966, Mr. Mansour Al-Zahab, head of MENA for Frontier View, and Zeynep Kosarisalu, director for Turkey and the MENA region at Frontier View. Frontier View with hubs in DC, London, and Singapore is a leading market intelligence and research company founded in 2008 and is now part of Fiscal Note after being acquired in 2021. Earlier in this year, in 2023, Mansour authored a post on Saudi Arabia's regional HQ program, highlighting the legal and practical details of the regulation ahead and its effective date starting just next year. We are excited to discuss this with you both. Welcome onto the 966. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for having us. We we really are happy to have you on. This is a this is a fascinating topic and an important topic. And uh, Lucian and I do this every every week on the 966. And this seems to be like a lot of topics in Saudi Arabia where it was notional. I think the, the announcement was issued in 2019 and now it's things are becoming real. So actually, you know, from 2019, now we're three months away, as Lucian mentioned, January 2024, when the regional HQ requirements kick in. So really timely conversations. Thanks so much for being here. Before we leap into it, Zainab, can you tell us a little bit about Frontier View and, and, and your work? And I guess you guys are coming off a really fascinating event you just put on in Dubai. So please, please share. Of course, thank you. We, uh, our Frontier View, we are a research advisory firm. We focus on macroeconomic, political, regulatory developments. We analyze how they impact multinational companies, their operations, the outlook for the demand for their products and services. And we work exclusively with senior executives, so general managers, heads of strategy, heads of finance, uh, that level of, of executives, which means we've been working a lot with them on this regional headquarters regulation. It has been top of mind for every executive we're talking to in Middle East region, but outside of the Middle East region. And we share our, um, you know, research through events, as you've mentioned, we've had, uh, we've hosted over 70 executives in, in Dubai last month, but also through our analysis, and we talk to uh, executives quite frequently. So we're looking forward to sharing what we're hearing um, from from the executives today. Wonderful. And just a really simple opening, Mansoor, I mean, what is the regional headquarters? You know, what is the initiative? And what does the Saudi government aim to achieve through this RHQ, yeah, this this has essentially just been the uh, the same question we've been hearing constantly over the last uh, twelve months or so. So I'll try to describe it uh, in the best way possible. Really, the main goal here is that Saudi wants to diversify its economy. It, it has a very clear vision, and it's very committed to take its economy to a more sustainable place. Uh, rely a lot less on oil and really kind of start to rely more on a very diversified uh, economy with many industries in. And so one way they thought of doing that is to bring in more specializations, more skills, uh, and a variety of operations into the kingdom uh, and and use that as a strategy to push the economy into the next uh, evolution, really. 
And so in 2019, the uh, the Saudi government issued a notice requiring that all multinationals to have a regional headquarters uh, office based in the kingdom, most likely in Riyadh, if they want to sell to the public sector. And they use that as probably one of the best uh, incentives to try bring in multinationals. Uh, we all know that uh, the opportunity that most multinationals are very keen on capturing in the MENA region is the public sector opportunity and the huge projects that are ongoing in the kingdom. So if multinationals want to take a, uh, a, a slice of that pie, they have to exist in the kingdom and they have to do some substantial work um, taking on more responsibilities internally, not just looking to sell uh, into the kingdom. In more practical explanations, you can kind of think of it as a business license, right? So uh, a multinational now requires this new business license. Uh, it's a non-commercial license. It's a very kind of operations-based one. And they need to showcase some real headquarters-based activities so that they can be compliant, so that they can get that business license, and so that they can really sell and emerge themselves into the many tenders that are available in the kingdom. And all of that has to happen before the turn of the year, so just before 2024. Um, it's really being handled by the MISA, so the, the uh, essentially the Ministry of Investments in Saudi Arabia. They're the main stakeholder on the authority side, and they just want to bring in as many companies as possible and get that uh, the economy diversified in a substantial manner. So we're going to want to get into all the questions that are posed to you by all these uh, multinationals. But so what what companies are subjected to this rule uh, specifically and, and and what defines compliance? I think that's probably the, the shade, you know, the grayest area for all the people who are coming to ask you for advice. Yeah, so really the the umbrella of what companies have been affected is quite wide. So you're either directly impacted through compliance or otherwise, if we focus on that first portion, it's the the main category is that if you're selling to the public sector or to a public authority, you fall under that regulation. So you could be a healthcare uh, company, you could be a construction company, you could be a technological and logistics firm, uh, or any other various industry that is looking to sell a product or a solution uh, to any public project or a public uh, procurer. And uh, what's really more interesting is that the MENA region really kind of operates on a on a mixed channel basis, right? So you have some multinationals operating directly, so they have a physical presence in the kingdom. Some other companies really have relied on distributors or local partners on the ground. It doesn't matter if you're operating directly or indirectly and you're selling to the government or a public procurer, you are under that um, a compliance uh, you know, necessary regulation of the, the RSQ program overall. And, you know, we had we received quite a few questions actually early on because it was a bit of a gray area as to whether PIF projects fall under that uh, restriction. Right. And the frontier view kind of approach and the perspective has always been that it doesn't matter if PIF, cause PIF is a little bit of a tricky situation. It's a quasi uh, private public uh, entity. The way that we looked at it is it is still very publicly funded. So it does fall under or the, the regulation. So even if you're looking to sell to a PIF-owned company within the Saudi kingdom, you would have to be compliant with the RSQ 
program. And essentially, that's driving most of the opportunity, really, actually. The PIF is uh, owning most of these projects. So you have to be compliant if you're selling to that space as well. So sorry, Mansur, just to, just to clarify for our listeners. So if I want to, if I want to contract something in Kadia or Neon or a logistics or do this, and I, you, you're effectively saying PIF is the government. Mm-hmm. So you, you PIF. have to comply with the RHQ. Yeah, so PIF is amongst one of the public authorities. That's the name that's given to these various procurers, really. So you have to be compliant with it, yes. I believe the only exception that we can see when it comes to PIF is if you're selling to a PIF-owned entity outside of the kingdom. Then here you may be exempt, so long as that solution or that product is not within the the, the borders of Saudi Arabia. Gotcha, gotcha. Um and 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 a sort of an extension of this you said this has been managed mostly by the ministry of investment misa do they have an in-house consulting do they, can you go and ask a question to misa and say you know can you clarify this for me do i qualify am i am i required to comply here I think I might take this one. Um, we've been talking to a lot of executives who have been engaging with MISA. Um, they are very much, it seems, uh, cooperating and conversing with MISA, all these um, multinational companies. Uh, but of course, the process of engaging with them is quite uneven across uh, different companies. Some companies have proactively approached MISA with certain uh, proposals and they have had negotiations with them. Others have been approached by MISA itself. Uh, Other companies are a bit more hesitant yet to approach MISA, although we are approaching the end of the year. So there's definitely a a kind of team inside MISA that is tasked to ensure that they are talking to uh, multinational companies, that they are actually um, kind of taking them through whether their proposal is sufficient or not before they engage in that final um, implementation. And this is one of the fascinating things we'll get to a little later. I know it's of really interest to Lucian and myself is what different companies have done and where they find themselves now. Um, but before we do that, what what defines compliance? And I think this was everyone asked the question. Well, what does it mean? Can I just you know can I just put up you know one of my people in Riyadh and say you're my headquarters? Is does that does that satisfy the requirements? Well, what defines compliance? So that is exactly what the authorities wanted to avoid. Um, and although maybe at the start there was a little bit of ambiguity, um, the, the essentially the, the, the uh, or MISA uh, listed very comprehensively certain activities and uh, uh, essentially operations that you have to undertake within the kingdom for it to count uh, as that you're complying. And the way that we think about them is that you have a strategic kind of category of of uh, activities. This is anything from really helping create the regional strategy um, uh, from from the business side, coordinating with various other hubs and other markets, um, you know, thinking about your portfolio management, reviewing uh, your financial and investment decisions, all of that fit underneath the, uh, the strategic direction kind of category. You also need to uh, undertake a selection of a strategic management operations and uh, that includes uh, matters such as business planning budgeting um, kind of reviewing competition dynamics um, marketing falls under that uh, category as well and you also have a little bit more of a kind of loose 
category which you can kind of choose a selection of um, you know operations such as sales support or HR uh, auditing, compliance, legal, uh, logistics, advisories, these kind of things um, have to also be included. You need to showcase that you're doing a selection of these various operations to be compliant. And you also need to make sure that the, because this is, this is where it gets a little bit competitive in the region, right? You have to make sure that as part of the hub in Rio, it covers a certain amount of some substantial markets. Um, I think we used to hear um, kind of very casual, let's say, anecdotes of uh, some multinationals thinking if they can kind of go in with saying, okay, we'll look at Oman, we'll look at uh, Kuwait and uh, Saudi. Um, the idea is you need to have some substantial amount of work being done. So you have to choose or to cover markets that are creating quite a bit of your business in the Middle East, North Africa region. You couldn't just get away with uh, kind of the absolute minimum, if that makes sense. It, 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 again, it's so interesting. We and, th and this MNC will go unnamed, but a, a large pharma who was an early mover on this, and and they were saying, "Thank goodness, because what the deal we got is significantly better than one that folks are getting now." How has how have the compliance requirements changed? Have they gotten tighter, stricter? Uh, how how have they evolved over the? This is because this is a four year period now. Yeah, no, I think I, I think we know who you're referring to, to be honest. And I think we've heard that with many multinationals that we've worked with as well uh, in the healthcare space, because they were really the first movers when you're thinking of various industries. Um, it really has changed quite a bit. I mean, the first thing is Misa wanted to bring in as many uh, kind of companies as quickly as possible. So they were actually incentivizing to say we could be a little bit more flexible uh, kind of early on. Uh, that changed a couple of times throughout because also Misa has a certain goal that it would like to achieve. So they, they are kind of being as flexible as possible uh, and facilitating that movement. But when we're thinking of how did compliance evolve over time, you can kind of think of it as, uh, you know, initially uh, the Saudi authorities and Misa kind of did naturally start with the the stick approach. And the reason for that is they really wanted to make sure that the message is going out very clearly um, that Saudi is very committed to this reform. And they wanted to make sure that multinationals and the private sector is taking this uh, seriously and they don't end up essentially leaving it right to the end of and you end up with a kind of a bottleneck situation. The initial reaction that we saw from the multinationals that we work with and kind of what we were hearing from uh, on the ground is that unfortunately, yes, a number of multinationals opted for the wait and see uh, kind of approach. And then now, kind of in the last 10, 12 months, they started to hurryingly get the proposals together. There was a lot of confusion. Everyone wanted to meet with Misa to get their ideas and kind of run the ideas by them so that they don't leave it right up to the deadline. And so we started to see more kind of hands on deck with that approach. Um, and then many multinationals came to us and said, okay, we need help. Uh, what did other companies do? What, what, what worked for them? What can we do? Um, so you can kind of start to see that urgency really spiked um, uh, all of a sudden. Um, but the compliance did also start to bring in more of the carrot uh, in the sense that there were a lot of incentives that were being uh, also provided. And MISA is quite in tune with the internal multinational challenges that you face. 
at the end of the day, there is a big misalignment or there was a big misalignment between the local teams and then corporate start outside of the region. We had many stories and many of our uh, kind of clients and, and the multinationals that we operate with have come to say to us when we're on the ground in Saudi or, or in Dubai, essentially they've said, look, we get this importance, but I don't know how to communicate to corporate that this is very urgent. Now, understanding, uh, understandably, corporate may have seen it as, you know, this is a big investment. Um, this is a big exposure that we're going to put in the kingdom. And so we're not sure how to do it yet, given that there is still quite a lot of un, uh, or lack of clarity around how it will be implemented and when it will start and how serious uh, it, it is. Um, of course, that's all changed, but the the really interesting thing is that Mesa tried to also accommodate for that. They knew that uh, such challenges will uh, pop up, and they've left that window so wide, so that you're talking about a four-year window. They've, they've done that on purpose so that many of these challenges will start to surface, and they can resolve them in due time. And we started to see a bit more of a flexible approach, a little bit more incentives, uh, being kind of provided so that they can resolve some of the concerns that corporate might have and perhaps try to close uh, or help align, let's say, local teams with, with the corporate perspective. Fascinating. Zainab, the companies that aren't subjected to comp the compliance, and so how are they reacting to all this? I think even um, before moving on to other companies, you've mentioned something very importantly around how implementation is differing to some of the companies you've spoken to earlier on and versus now. I think if I could give a few examples, because it's really important to emphasize the differences in the amount of um, uh, pressure that they're getting from MISA at different levels. We've seen companies that bring uh, regional functions to Riyadh. Uh, that will cover entirely the MENA portfolio. We've seen companies that only bring the management of a few countries into Riyadh. So totally different structures, but they've actually both gotten confirmation from, from MISA. We've mm. seen some uh, that have decided to, as, as Mansour mentioned, uh, manage countries such as you know Kuwait, maybe Jordan, uh, Iraq, etc. But others who have, have had legacy UAE management from, from Saudi, which is rare, but they have had it. And that was sufficient enough to create a, a large kind of uh, substantial business that they should be covering. Uh, we've had companies say they've gotten confirmation from MISA if they have their Riyadh office reporting to the UAE, but others that say they've also gotten confirmation if their hub reports to Europe and outside. So the case-by-case -case implementation has been really <laughs> drastic in terms of differences. It's just about uh, negotiation power, first of all, but also uh, different realities that each business uh, is in, basically, uh, and what their current level of revenue is in the region, what their current hub structure is in the UAE, what their existing size of team members are already in the region. So this has really, I think, caused some differences in, in negotiations, which is the flexibility side of, of the Saudi government, but also the uncertainty side of the regulations, a double-edged sword. I would, I just wanted to add on that front. Well, no, it's got to be fascinating because I, yeah, I think I, you have to applaud the Mises flexibility. I mean, this requirement and you, and you, as with so many things Saudi Arabia is doing now, there's a, they tend to put it out there, refine, put it out there, refine, and move mm -hmm. towards their ultimate goal, which I think is, is again, commendable. Um, but that does, you know, result in a situation where you may have a bunch of CEOs sitting in a room going, oh, you got that deal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I didn't get that which deal. Which happens at our event. 
<laughs> that that's true. Yes. <laughs> when we bring together senior executives, that is exactly what they ask each other. What deal did you get? <laughs> exactly. Um, it's fascinating. And, and while we're on the topic, because you you so you made a very interesting point, and it, it makes sense. There's the local sort of essentially there's the local office, and then there's a corporate office, and the corporate office is looking at the whole region. Um, and they have to deal with potential fallout if they're saying, okay, we're going to move the regional HQ from Turkey or uh, obviously the Emirates is a, is a frequent one. Um, how have they managed this fallout internally? Is that something you guys have a keyhole into? Yeah. So this was one of the tricky um, kind of questions and the problems that we've tried to essentially uh, resolve and from the start we were very clear in saying you have to think of it not as purely just a regional headquarters approach you still have a regional hub elsewhere you still have a lot of business that you're doing um, in the emirates or in turkey as you mentioned so what would be the right approach in that sense and it's one of the actions that we have recommended is to just kind of look at the entire region and uh, not to really kind of go towards one or the other approach at the expense of the other. And what we mean by that is whatever you do, just don't burn bridges of any market that you're operating in. That's number one. At number two, it's not to discount the importance of the other markets, including the UAE. And I think the, the main message that we wanted to highlight is use them in their various uh, strengths. So there's a very different strength that you can uh, take out operating and having a regional office in Saudi versus having one in the UAE. They operate very differently. Uh, we've, we've seen a, a few different multinationals trying to uh, reshape the wider region. So not just purely uh, Middle East, North Africa, but actually start to look at uh, Middle East, Africa, or more towards the East and kind of start to divide up the market coverage and, and the operations uh, between, let's say, the Turkish um you know, hub or the uh, the hub in Dubai or, or Abu Dhabi uh, versus the one in Riyadh. That helps shift the uh, the weight from one to the other. And you can kind of go back to Misa and say, actually, look, we're doing substantial work here. Saudi is a very important market for us. And we want to leverage some of the investments that we're doing in Saudi for some of the other markets around us. So we won't do this necessarily at the expense of the UAE because the UAE office is focusing on other things. This helps smoothen the conversation a little bit more. Uh, Zainab, maybe you can kind of also just add a few of the uh, of your perspectives or, and the anecdotes that you've heard on this. Of course, I think what we've seen from multinationals is very few, if if almost none, are moving their existing hub directly exactly in the same structure to Riyadh. Mm -hmm. This all means what Munster has described as an added cost to companies' regional um, kind of organizational structure, right? They're adding a layer of management into Riyadh. Uh, they're keeping certain levels of engagement uh, in existing hubs, but when you add a layer of, again, regional management, you're just adding cost. And what that requires is for you to have maybe higher targets for the MENA region overall. It means you have even uh, higher targets to ensure commercial performance is uh, growing that in a way that justifies your investment into into Saudi, so it's a bit of a double-edged sword, increasing in in costs, of course, increasing exposure, um, investment and, and closeness to the customer base in in Riyadh and in the in the region, but also 
targets go up <laughs> accordingly with that added yeah. Uh, yeah. cost structure. Do you have uh, when it when it it was launched in twenty issued notice was issued in twenty nineteen. Soon thereafter, I believe they sort of brought out I think forty two large multinationals that said, you know, this is we're going to do this. And you really haven't seen a number since. I haven't anyway. Lucian, you may have. Um, do you have a sense of the numbers of MNCs that have 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 moved in this direction and are set up to be prepared for that January 2024 deadline? I think we won't have a concrete figure until early 2024. What we do know is that uh, that number is certainly above that 42. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, I think we're a lot, even above 100, uh, maybe above 150 even, actually. Uh, the the reason for the lack of clarity about the number is that actually you, right now, Misa has a lot of uh, files on its desk that it has to approve. <laughs> so suddenly you'll see that number maybe jump from 180 to 250 all of a sudden. Uh, because now we, we're in that bottleneck situation and multinationals, again, left their right to the end to kind of push through some of their final proposals. But there is a very large number because everyone has now accepted that this is not a bluff. Uh, this is not a, a kind of a, a light approach. There is some real commitment behind the regional headquarters program. So we would expect to see the number kind of even above 200, to be honest. Fascinating. Um Zainab, that question that we 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 put aside, you know, there are companies that are don't fall under this requirement. How how are they reacting to this? Are, are they feeling left out? Are they <laughs> not at all? I guess. And Monster talks a lot more to companies outside of uh, like those that sell to the public sector. But what I can share at a broad level is we have been getting increasing attention towards Saudi from all sectors, first of all. So we are talking about increasing investments, companies increasing investments into Saudi as part of this RHQ. But actually, even outside of this, we are just hearing every week um, another uh, board meeting happening, another company bringing their heads of international into the region, another company um, kind of outlining its long-term Saudi strategy, trying to convince corporates to bring in more resources. So there's definitely a general increasing uh, attention, but also, again, pressure to perform commercially, get these results in as quickly as possible, um, which is causing a, a rise in investment into the kingdom. We can see that in uh, kind of publicly available numbers, in private conversations. Uh, overall, there's just expanded uh, exposure, pressure, uh, competition in, in the um, kingdom and i think the regulation will have quite a lot of important economic effects that can impact have ripple effects onto other sectors and i think monster talks to those companies uh, on those ripple effects i don't know if you have anything to add on that monster yeah so so Zainab, uh, uh, an mnc makes it makes a decision they take the leap mm -hmm. what are the challenges they're facing you know they would have heard from all their folks in the emirates i don't want to go i don't want to go or or whatever, you know, you know, the schools, the the entertainment, any, any, you know, any number of things that said, you know, that might have been resistance to the move. All right. So the decision is made. So now what are these MNCs facing, you know, legally, logistically, human resources, ways, everywhere? Yes, there's there's a long list uh, of, <laughs> of, of an answer. But I guess the first one that comes up is really talent. 
talent management is the first um, area of focus for companies. Uh, we've mentioned our event in September when we bring together any group of executives. Uh, somehow it, we turn into, lately we've been turning into an, a kind of HR panel at, at, at some point. Um, because first of all, cost of employment is higher in, in Saudi versus the UAE. So first of all, companies had to adjust to even higher compensation packages for the kingdom. Um, finding talent that is willing to relocate is one challenge. Finding local talent is another challenge. Um, and we've been hearing more concerns about uh, the readiness of the kingdom for the, this ecosystem for uh, increasing influx of expats. And we know that the, the country is listening to these concerns. We know that there are efforts to uh, improve this ecosystem, improve availability of education, etc. So um, I think we will see an improvement in willingness to find talent in, in, in Saudi, but that's been the initial um, challenge. Um, second has been around um, as I guess I've mentioned a few times, the rising uh, commercial performance pressure on, on the region and having that accurate target, accurate addressable market size that justifies this kind of investment is also a challenge. But what is the, you see, you've mentioned Kadia, there are many projects that are coming up. Uh, when, what is their timeline? How and how quickly can companies capture them in order to kind of really justify the ROI of this investment? You've mentioned, I think, legal. I think we've been hearing from companies challenges on uh, being 100% certain on key tax regulations. That's another uncertainty. And um, I think it's important to highlight for any company that is willing to do business in Saudi, there's a whole host of localization initiatives and, and pressures and, and incentives. The RHQ is one of them. So I think... There are a lot of different stakeholders managing different localization elements. So really stakeholder management, uh, devising a wide localization plan for the kingdom, not just for RHQ, but assets, workforce, mm -hmm. et cetera. That's that I would say would be another key challenge. As you know, Saudi Arabia has all these goals across any number of sectors. And in order for them to be attractive, in order for them to be feasible or achievable, they've had to reassess and revise and change their regulatory environment in a lot of areas. Is that regulatory reform keeping up in terms of attracting people and making it feasible for them to make the move? I'm not sure if you have anything to add. I, I would say the first one still, especially you mentioned pharma companies, healthcare sector, IP protection is still not um, kind of developing fast enough. I think data privacy laws as well are a um, key focus area for companies to see a bit more uh, certainty. Um, tax regulations, uh, that's, that's also a third one. And cost of employment in general, I would say not at the management level, but more at the um, kind of production factors of production level. Uh, uncertainty on minimum wage changes and kind of uh, workforce localization uh, regulations quick changes on those have also not been easy for companies to manage. Interesting. Really interesting. Um, so here we are at the starting gate. How will this look, how will this look in a few months, January, 2024? I guess we will all have to wait and see, but until we, <laughs> until we see how January looks like, um, what we would expect is for most multinational companies to have finalized their proposals, at least with MISA. We might not be in a world of one day switch where every company has moved their headquarter and is perfectly ready and operational, but at least most multinational companies is, are likely to have 
either share their proposals with MISA in the process of finalizing and getting confirmation, in the process of opening up their physical office. Um, basically, what MISA would like to see is very active preparation uh, on, on this front if they have not fully uh, interesting so they just yeah. they just want the papers to be signed january 24th you might be moving in over the course of a year or whatever you know that's what we're hearing so this is not i would not want right. to be right. legally quoted on this um in terms of because that this also changes and that's i guess the the question mark that companies don't have an answer to and that's why those that are more proactive are getting better deals right because they are not waiting to be the last person on the list to look like they've been forced to do this, but actually companies that are taking the proactive initiative to showcase that are actually getting better response because of this uncertainty. But we don't expect, of course, um, especially for companies that provide essential products to be immediately shunned from the market if they don't have the, you know, the furnished office by January 1st, if that makes sense. Right. Makes sense. But what is the UAE's response to this? Are they just are they letting this happen and they're just doing nothing and saying, well, you know, we will outcompete Saudi Arabia? What what do they have a plan like this in the mix? I mean, and the same goes for any other GCC state. Do you guys have any insight on that? Yeah, so the uh, I think because we, we got that question very, very um, yeah. a lot basically over the last few months. And the best way to think about it is the UAE is firstly in its own timeline. It's, it's a very different journey to where Saudi is going at this point. I think originally there were a lot of, um, there was a lot of, there were, there were many people essentially trying to say that could this potentially be Saudi Arabia trying to catch up to the UAE and they're doing it rather aggressively. To some degree, maybe yes, but really Saudi's journey is going to be very different to the UAE's journey. And, we have to remember that actually the population dynamics play a very, very important role here. The UAE as a country is very much heavy on the expat population and has a very different structure to uh, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has an enormous domestic population and it serves a different goal in the long term. So what the UAE has been doing is really kind of continuing on its own track. It has its own visions. It's really focusing on um, making sure that the expats that come to the UAE stay for a longer period of time. So actually, this was the original goal from, you know, before the pandemic, but we saw acceleration of those moves during the pandemic of really providing reassurances that you should bring your family over to the UAE. You should think about retirement in the UAE. You should think about actually investing as an expat in the UAE rather than just kind of thinking about, okay, let's, let me uh, accumulate my savings and then take them back home. And the UAE is now shifting its focus on what type of industries it, what it wants to you know, capitalize on. Yes, the PIF and, and Saudi are really kind of going all out on a, a huge number of various industries, but the UAE is actually doing the opposite. It's, it's doubling down on uh, SMEs, it's doubling down on uh, you know, innovative startups, on innovative solutions, on climate solutions. So it's, it's taking its journey to a very different destination which is also helping serve the long-term goal for the Emirates, which is we want, to, we want to remain different. We're not saying that it has to come at the expense of Saudi, but we just want to remain different. So these are some of the things and that, that the UAE has been undertaking. And we've seen that through reforms and the visas, the incentives to the SMEs, the encouragements to specific number of industries that continue to receive a lot of funding and support. 
I, I, it is interesting. And there was a lot of commentary when it was first, the notice was first issued about what this meant. You know, was it going to be, you know, are they going to be head to head or does the rising tide lift all boats? And it, it sounds as if they're sorting these things out and playing to the various strengths. I have to say two things that I think are, uh, you, you said that at some point the MNCs realized the Saudis were serious. And I think that's fascinating because I think that's true of a lot of things that are going on in Saudi Arabia where something is proposed or launched and you go, well, really? And then a few years later, you realize, well, they're serious. And I don't know when that occurred, you know, 2021 or 20, I'm not sure when it occurred, but would you say if in fact the numbers look like they're around 200, 200 multinational companies decided to uh, work with MISA to meet these HQ initiative guidelines, would you say that's a success for Saudi Arabia? I think so far you have seen some of the success of the regional headquarters because it's come through in, in different ways. And we've seen maybe success that the kingdom had not originally planned for. Um, you know, you have many companies moving in, but the fact that this regional headquarters has brought in so many multinationals has also, as Zainab said, really encouraged other industries to increase their investments, although they, they don't have to comply with the regional headquarters. But all of a sudden, you have a consumer good company saying, oh, actually, the population dynamics are shifting a little bit. Maybe we can bring in this product or this solution or, um, you know, uh, change up, kind of take a few more risks to bring in different uh, products into the kingdom. So let's invest a little bit more. Let We want to put more people on the ground to capitalize on this opportunity. So you're seeing various types of successes. And we do believe that, yes, the regional headquarters will prove to be successful, even if it's, you know, a situation where you might have to really struggle to bring in talent at the start. But the idea is that, you know, five years down the line, you will start to see that a lot of that, um, you know, uh, specialization, the skills do get passed on. You start to have some real material, um, you know, sharing of knowledge that gets passed on to the up and coming graduates coming out of, of Saudi universities. Uh, and this is where you start to see the success. It's not just going to be in 2024, but we'll have to assess it again in 29 and 30 and 35 um, as you know, naturally economy starts to evolve. Mm. To add on that, I guess the word success can look different for teams based in Saudi UAE versus teams based in uh, the US or outside of the region. Here, uh, corporate alignment is very important. The, most of the time, local teams do understand there can be very big headlines uh, related to Saudi. Uh, that probably means we will not get all the way there, but we will get halfway and that will be a lot better than where we were today. And that means local teams do try to set as much as much as they can realistic targets, but then they have to really communicate Saudi or many governments in the region never intended all the way up there in terms of uh, their targets and that alignment of what success means for each company as well as for Saudi is very important. And Soar Al-Zahab, head of MENA for Frontier View, joining us from London, and Zainab Kosarisalu, director for Turkey in the MENA region at Frontier View, joining us from Dubai. Thank you both so much. This was terrific. Really appreciate it. Fascinating topic. Thank you, all
that was our conversation. We answer also have and Zainab Kosarisalu really enjoyed that discussion. It's a it's a topic that we have sort of talked about consistently since it launched because there's so many things that connect to it. But it was great to have some experts on who have been working on it over the last year. So we appreciate their time very much. That was, Richard, that was great. It was awesome. And you know, we're very attuned to US corporates, but corporates in general. And and, and you know, this has been on their agenda as how to how to handle it, what to do, and that sort of thing for some time since this right now we're coming down to the wire. So that was really a wonderful conversation. I have to, you know, give a shout out to you because you just took to Zainab's last name beautifully. I mean, you crushed it. Thank you. <laughs> it's so much better than the alternative. <laughs> we were talking beforehand. How do we do this? And then then we were talking with Zainab, who's who's lovely as well as very intelligent and, and expert on this opinion, on this, on this topic, you know, so I said, well, how, you know, how to pronounce it. And, and you got it. You got it. Uh, it would, I would have struggled with it. Do you, do you want to give it a shot right now? No, you, not you that Zay, Zaynab, that's what <laughs> yeah. I want to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, uh, and, uh, watch Lou. There you go. You kind yeah. of, yes, pretty good. Uh, viewers can see it and it's, um, it's on, we have stills and this sort of looks, it's not like CNN, but it kind of looks like a news channel because we have chirons and everything. So, uh, you know, it's, you'll, you'll, you guys will see that, but, uh, she was brilliant. He was brilliant. So, uh, yeah, we really appreciate their time. Richard, let's get to Yella and sticking with the theme of that we mentioned earlier in this podcast, we're going to do a little description here. So Yella is a segment that we discussed maybe, uh, six it's actually it's always six top storylines from the week and it's not the most important storylines in saudi arabia necessarily but there are storylines that sort of are curated this week exclusively by you richard thank you but um <laughs> you know sort of highlight what's going on in saudi arabia stuff that actually may not be above the fold that you may think is interesting and our hope is that when you listen to these every week you're going to really understand the place because it's not just all the high level news things that you would get typically so um that's Yella. And at the beginning as well, we always, uh, even though people don't like it, say Yella. <laughs> Saudi in a minute. Saudi in a minute. <laughs> Yella. Uh, just to add, since you get a nice nice job sort of describing what we do. So after at the end of every episode, we end up with nine segments. Mm -hmm. Six Yellas, two one big things, and, and then our guests feature. So uh, that's a lot of stuff. So mm -hmm. Yella number one. A week after revealing talks with Australia about bidding to co-host the 2034 World Cup, Indonesian soccer leader Eric Thohor said his federation is now supporting Saudi Arabia's candidacy, candidacy to host the tournament. Uh, Thohir is probably it. Thohir's change of plan was detailed in a statement on the Indonesian Soccer Federation website hours before an online meeting of the Asian Football Confederation, whose 47 members include Australia, Indonesia, and Saudi Arabia. During the meeting, FIFA President Gianni Infantino urged AFC members to, quote, be united for the 2034 World Cup, unquote. I don't I don't see how I mean, I think Saudi Arabia gets it. This is my bold call this week. I think Saudi Arabia has a ton of momentum here and there are going to be legitimate contenders for this, but I see Saudi Arabia as getting the World Cup, and I think that would be awesome if they do. Well, I don't have a ton to add to this specific news story, but mm -hmm. it just sort of seems to me that it is trending in that direction. So 
inshallah, Richard, Saudi Arabia is the one that gets it because, you know, I know that they want it. You know, we both do fantasy football and we both have been athletes all our lives. So the moment you start to anticipate victory is when it's snatched away from you. Of course, indeed. Uh, <laughs> but, the, you know, it sounds at this juncture, it seems like Saudi Arabia has played this well. You know, they were thinking about going in a bid on 2030. Clearly got an indication that they should wait. So I think as part of that conversation, they said, okay, we'll wait 2034. Can we, can we, um, you know, have an opportunity to maybe get out of the gate quickly? And you see what's happening here. I mean, just when they announced it, that the bidding was open last, last just a couple of weeks ago, they said, you actually have to, you know, declare your intention within, by the end of October, which is very quick. You know, bids don't get into later, but you have to declare your intention. So you have Saudi Arabia, you know, it was, that was announced by FIFA on Wednesday, Saudi Arabia had on the desk, at, you know, on Thursday. Australia, who seems to be the primary competitor, was a little caught, I think, flat-footed on this. And you, then you see something like this, Indonesia, a huge country, but also other AFC members, Japan Federation proposed United support behind Saudi bid backed by Uzbekistan, Lebanon, and India. Um, so it looks like they're lining up their ducks nicely to hopefully secure this 2034 World Cup. We'll know at the we'll know at the end of October if Australia has put their hat in the ring. Mm -hmm. Australia is the primary competitor. Yeah, that that's right. Um, Saudi Arabia will host the last 17 Club World Cup for FIFA in December coming up. So that that'll be cool. It'll be a little bit of a a beta test for them as well. Um, and, and I like that idea. I like the Club World Cup idea. Oh, I like that too. I think that's really cool. And I think, um, you know, all of this fits into the context of, you know, if you're sort of new to what's happening here, the Saudi investment into football is going crazy. Actually, you know what? No matter how new you are to this, you probably know about Saudi investment into developing its own soccer league and bringing in international stars as well within the kingdom. So this would really, really provide a jolt of life to those efforts because you have this to look forward to. So um, when is this awarded? When, when, did the, when does the decision pass down? Is it next year? Uh, I want to say November, 2025. 2025. Okay. Maybe so no, 25, that may be too far away, but maybe November, 2024. I want to okay. say that. I may be conflating it with the uh, a world expo. The expo which, world expo the, is the coming up, right? Final is in, yeah, they're going to make the announcement next month, I think November. Okay. So, so maybe, but I, I know the, the, you know, the intention to bid is October 31st and then the actual bids are sometime later. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, because we will be having some news on the world cup. I mean, on the uh, world expo coming up very soon for Saudi Arabia. So um, going against, of course, Italy and Ukraine as well, and right? South Korea and South, South Korea. Korea. Yep. Uh, Yellow number two. The second edition of the Made in Saudi Expo Exposition. Uh, sorry, let me do this again. The second edition of the Made in Saudi Expo Exhibition will be held at the Roshan Front in Riyadh from October 16th to 19th, 2023, under the patronage of Bandar al Khoraif. Another name check for Bandar al Khoraif, Minister of Industry and Mineral Resources and Chairman of the Saudi Export Development Authority. Themed Saudi craftsmanship, the expo will showcase Saudi Arabia's industries services and innovations aligning itself with the national goals of fostering diversity highlighting competitive quality and boosting the local industry over 100 saudi companies are expected to participate across various sectors including food pharmaceuticals tech transportation logistics and more 
So in keeping with the theme of talking about how this gets done and why we do it, this was the second YALA. The first YALA initially was to be that GAMI announcement, which I plucked to be the one big, my one big thing. And the reason they were one, two in YALA was because they were both highlighting manufacturing and localization of products. And, and so this is very much in keeping with what was intended to be a one, two punch at the top of yellow, <laughs> which but I, but instead sports, <laughs> sports always creeps in, but well, well, we also get a little more in depth on Gammy and Sammy, but mm-hmm. it, it's, again, it's all in keeping, you know, let's try and develop our manufacturing sector. Let's uh, try and promote homegrown industry services and, and innovations and, and, you know, in the process, diversify, you know, employ and upskill just all good stuff. So I don't have much to add to that. Yeah. I do have something to add to the previous segment we did, by the way, Richard, because we, we taught, and we actually just mentioned this right before the show started, but Neymar went down with an ACL. Yeah. So we're, we're hoping that he gets, um, you know, a chance to recover and everything, but, uh, and we were talking old, about that Yeah, you know, at 31. Yeah. Yeah. That's a rough one. Yeah. But he, they did do this social media post, which it's going absolutely viral where it's like he basically says i'll be back uh so you know hopefully he he is and you know hopefully he has a safe recovery he he and aaron Rodgers, he'll be yeah. back aaron Rodgers apparently is way ahead i just read an article about it this morning that he may come back I, this I year which is making, insane i think he's making project which makes our friend fahad nasser very happy mm-hmm. oh yeah a, a you know Jets what fan. we Big should Jets have fan. him we should have had him on <laughs> after he went down no, that would have been too cruel. We're <laughs> friends after all. We don't want to be mean to them. Well, I mean, but, you know, as Redskins slash Commanders <laughs> fans, we can pretty much say anything we well, want because the comeback is very easy. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, we, you know, if we want to set ourselves up, gloat about the Commanders, you know. Yeah, yeah. They're like, you don't even have a home stadium. It's just <laughs> a visiting it's, stadium. <laughs> it's a horrible experience. <laughs> um. Uh, yellow number three, Saudi Arabia's crude oil exports in August hit their lowest level in 28 months as they fell for a fifth straight month, according to the Joint uh, Organizations Data Initiative, Jody. Uh, crude exports from the world's largest oil exporter fell to 5.58 million barrels per day, down 7.1% from 6.0 million barrels per day in July and the lowest since April 2021. Saudi Arabia and Russia have agreed to a combined voluntary oil supply cuts of 1.3 million barrels per day or more than 1% of global demand until the end of the year. You've got the WTI around 88, 90 and Brent crude around almost $92 right now. Um, That's where Saudi Arabia wants it, but it is not pumping a lot of oil to keep that price there. So this is still so important for Saudi Arabia to be exporting crude oil because it is still such a massive part of their economy. It goes back to my one big thing and the other topics we discussed today. Part of the reason to diversify is because you don't want to be so reliant on this. But yeah, I mean, and of course, we have the situation in Israel and Gaza, the war that could potentially cause upward or downward pressure, depending on how things go. Um, it, it, this is, this is something to watch for sure. Well, they're playing, you know, they're playing, they have a strategy. Uh, and yes, they, they like the $90 roughly, but you know, a couple things, one nice thing in terms of, uh, uh, you know, pressure 
quote unquote pressure that might be perceived or brought to bear. Uh, gas prices in the U.S. are coming down like they always do, sort of at you know after the, the driving season. Um, that's a good thing. Uh, on the upbeat side, China just had a good quarter. You know the, their economy's been lagging. They grew 4.9 percent year over year, which was higher than was forecast. Um, you know they're so. But again, I, I think you know if you go IMF, we we covered an IMF report on the Saudi economy and that you know their expectation that. Um, the GDP growth will be about 0.8% and that they'll be running a deficit. Um, that same report anticipates that real GDP for Saudi Arabia will be 4, 4, 4 plus percent in 2024, 5 plus percent in 2025, and about 5 in 2026. So they see it going back up. And again, which speaks to Saudi Arabia's decision, regardless of a budget deficit or regardless of stalled growth or spending. And so that's, you know, I think that I think that's been baked into everything they're doing. So the, the the oil prices are nice. They do feel like it's a volatile situation. And, you know, we covered Gaza last week, you know, thinking about what we wanted to do this week. Uh, you know, we're not touching on it, but I'm sure we'll be an opportunity to talk about it again. Mm hmm. Yeah, I don't think the situation there is going to be going away anytime soon. And yeah. It's uh, it's unfortunate. Yella number four. Saudi Arabia's seven hundred billion dollar public investment fund has disclosed that Swedish venture capital fund North North Zone has taken investment from its VC arm Sinabel, the only European VC firm known to have done so. The disclosure was part of Sinabel's decision earlier this year to name the venture growth and buyout funds it has backed in a move toward transparency that exposes Saudi Arabia's growing influence in the tech industry. Sinabel states on its website that it invests around $3 billion a year into funds and directly into startups like scooter company Bird, <clears throat> Smart Ring Aura, and business spend platform Brex. The scale of that investment could soon be dwarfed after the Saudi government transferred a 4% stake in energy giant Aramco worth $80 billion to Sinabel in April. Yeah, I actually just, I put this one in so you can have fun. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so. Uh, I, I thought mean, it was I interesting in, in the yeah. article. It said, you know, one of the reasons you don't have a lot of, uh, it suggests that one of the reasons you don't have a lot of venture capital firms involved in this is because they have to place so much money, such large sums, uh, that that hasn't been the sort of MO of a lot of these European investment firms. Yeah. The Sinabel guys are smart. They're, they're smart money. Um, it's interesting that they, they I, I, I would be curious, and I, I'm sure that this is not publicly available, but I would be curious as to when they invested in Bird, whose yeah. valuation is now down 98%. And, um, you know, but was one of the fastest companies to ever reach a unicorn valuation. And also, uh, you know, had, but now has a ton of bad press about how they sort of, petered off and, and, you know, their valuation is now about $39 million. Uh, and I just saw this, but it's roughly the sum of its founder, uh, the, the roughly the sum of the mansion that the founder is now selling in Florida. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I think bird might go belly up and that's the way it goes with VC investing. One of the hottest things in the moment now could definitely cost you to lose your shirt down the road. And so, but, but smart ring aura, I think is a very strong company and probably one of their wins. That's why you, are a fund of funds. You can mitigate your risk and invest in different funds. So, uh, 
Yeah. I'm sure other European VCs have taken Snobble money or or yeah. are on their docket. But yeah. Um, yeah, this is interesting. You know, it will be interesting too. And we discussed this with Amjad Ahmed Richard, and that was just such a great conversation. If you want to go back and, and listen to it, that's on our YouTube channel. Highly recommended. He really knows a lot about what's going on in Saudi Arabia and then also the global VC landscape. But what's interesting about... Um, you know, just the PIF and Snobble and some of these VC funds and what they're doing is there still is, unfortunately, a stigma with taking Saudi money. And, you know, these blue chip VC firms are not really bragging about it, but Saudi Arabia still put it out there and said, hey, look, we're, we're not the ones being not transparent, FYI. And so I was sort of looking at this last week when you started to see headlines and there was one in the New York Times about, you know, in the wake of the crisis in Gaza, are any CEOs or any people pulling out of FII? And the answer was basically no. <laughs> the New York Times couldn't find a single one. Sort of typical of the media saying, hey, maybe if we put this out there, it might happen. And you know, I don't see any after this article came out earlier this year in Bloomberg about Sanabal releasing their funds that they've invested in. I didn't see anybody giving the money back. So you know, this is going to be an issue going forward, but it's also not an issue at all. So anyway, yeah. interesting. Agreed. Yep. Um, Yella number five. Thank you, by the way. I did have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> I still put that in there. Lucian. Yeah. <laughs> Lucian. Yella <laughs> uh, number five, the chief executive of Saudi, Ra Saudi Aramco, Amin Nasser, said his company is looking at more investments in liquefied national gas, natural gas, LNG, to boost its plans to become a leading player in the seaborne gas market. Quote, LNG is important. We're looking at additional investments that are currently in the pipeline to be one of the leading players in LNG in the market, unquote. Uh, he told Energy Intelligence Conference this week. In September, Aramco said it had agreed to acquire a strategic minority stake in LNG company Mid-Ocean Energy for $500 million with an option to increase the size of the shareholding. This is interesting because this is part of a pattern. Uh, Aramco's upstream president, Nasser Al-Naimi, two weeks ago said that it was really interested in the LNG market for structural long-term growth for Aramco and said Aramco's intention is to become a leading global LNG player. So, uh, you know, this is just sort of a consistency in that. I mean, you know, I mean, Nasser is a CEO, but so his comments just move it forward. But yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely in their in their crosshairs. They they want to move into LNG a lot more. Yeah, it's interesting on two fronts. I think one, <clears throat> the production of of LNG. Um, you know, it went from the LNG, global LNG trade went from 100 million tons in 2000 to nearly 400 million tons in 2022. And the really interesting part of that is increasingly it's unconventional. So if you look at the, the global share of unconventional gas supply of the global gas production, uh, in 2000, it was 4%. In 2022, it was 12% and 35% in 2023. Most investment right now is going into unconventional, so shale. Uh, we just saw ExxonMobil spend $60 billion to acquire a major uh, you know, shale developer in the Permian. Um, but apparently, apparently, a lot of 
you know, discovered conventional gas sources are just being left because it's cheaper and, and quicker and more nimble to pursue unconventional. And you see this in Saudi Arabia with their Jafura project, uh, which is a huge unconventional gas project. They, they're going to be spending ultimately $100 billion on it, and they expect to be sort of the backbone of their, their LNG production, along with conventional LNG that comes off associated and non-associated uh, from oil fields. But uh, so anyway, the whole Middle East, if you have LNG capability, is ramping it up because there's a need and there's a market. Saudi Arabia is trying to get a big part of that. Interesting. Yella number six. A land, oh, I love this one, Richard. Previous 966 guest. 100%. Little there bit of go. a hat tip. A landmark report released during the Middle East and North Africa Climate Week, which ran in Riyadh from October 8th to October 12th, highlights the challenges that Saudi Arabia might face in a world that is warmer by three degrees Celsius. Titled Climate Futures Report, Saudi Arabia in a Three Degrees Warmer World, the report highlights the stark reality that Saudi Arabia is witnessing climate change at an accelerated pace compared to other regions. The 133-page study was generated by the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, or KAUST, Aon Collective, and King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center, CAPSARC, probably the three most authoritative voices on this subject getting mm -hmm. together. It noted that while the global average temperature is potentially on track to rise by nearly three degrees Celsius by the end of the century, Relative to the pre-industrial period of 1850 to 1900, the MENA region, including Saudi Arabia, could experience that change much sooner. Yo, you you want to go with the excitement because you know the you know Princess Michelle is quoted in this article. It's a good article. Princess Michelle Shalan was from the Aon Collective. Um, you you go of, for it. Yeah, you go for it. <laughs> now, one of the report's authors, and of course, a guest of the 966. I was actually thinking of it. We should invite her back to talk about this report. <clears throat> I saw this on LinkedIn earlier this week. We can send her a note. I was like, this is really a hell of an accomplishment because this is actually going to affect policy. People are going to see the le legitimacy of this and maybe change lives. It's kind of cool that you're doing this. And, um, you know, Kaust is unbelievably legitimate and, and has an, and, and Capsark is incredible. So like, yeah. this is a hell of a collab. Let me let me throw out her quote because she's quoting. Please, the please, please. Quote, yep. quote, climate change doesn't only challenge our environment. It affects every facet of our lives, our health, food, water, as well as our economy. Our actions today will decide whether we can weather these challenges or face irreversible damages, unquote, which is very much in keeping with her with the tone of her our discussion and her sort of holistic, uh, all inclusive, comprehensive sort of approach to this. Uh, but I tell you, this article is frightening. It's got a graph in here about, you know, the consequences of how, and it's called shared socioeconomic pathways, which, you know, are climate change scenarios. Uh, but yes, Saudi Arabia and the, and the Gulf is extremely vulnerable. It's already so hot there in the summer that uh, getting any hotter kind of blows my mind. And it's clearly heading in that direction. She wrote, uh, Actually, 30 minutes ago during during the recording of this podcast, another thing of fortune 
uh, just because I just said, hey, congrats on this is actually amazing. She said, we are committed to maintaining the momentum of what we've accomplished with this and focus on adaptation pathways and solutions next. So a live news quote thing happening here on the 966. Um, on the 966. But yeah, that Richard, that was such a great conversation um, we had with her. And yeah, let's invite her back because this is cool. And we've got the, um, the UAE climate deal. Well, Okay. coming up cop 28 Cop 28 or... which would be awesome and you know we're so uh jam-packed with guests we haven't really paid attention to that but we'll have a lot of um we'll have a lot of opportunities yeah that's just i'll, I'll reach out to her and let's get mm -hmm. her back on the show and, and everything maybe, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. everything maybe they in do the is so nice. that would be better yeah. and actually so she can give us a you know a, a sort of review and synopsis of what happened or what didn't happen absolutely yeah I was just going to say, and I'm sorry to, to interrupt you there, but they're, they're the quality of the, the production, like their, their visual reports are so beautiful. It's like an artist is doing it. So it's like, you know, and that with the sort of professionalism of Capsark and Cows is cool. Can, can I say uh, a sexist thing? Am I allowed to say a sexist thing? Uh, it's not really sexist. <laughs> We okay. talked about that when when Princess Michelle. I don't was, know is the answer. <laughs> no, no. What you're supposed to say is yes, of course. <laughs> then I'll say one. <laughs> no, no. Uh, when we first started getting to know Princess Michelle and AI Collective, and we reached out to her and started having a conversation and started seeing all those materials, I they were really impressive, and we commented on it. And I was going. Because the, the primary founders of the Aon Collective are women. And I said, this looks like it's done by really design-oriented women. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's sexist or not, but I'm just saying that, the, that it's funny you should bring up the materials because we've talked about them before. Uh, they're really attractive and well done. I don't know if that was sexist, but I'm going to distance you know, myself from anything. It implies, <laughs> implies males can't do something equally attractive and that sort of thing. But it just it was just weird looking at that. It was the the all the materials and the presentation was so striking. It was really nice. It was really nice to engage with. Yeah. Yeah. They even have the coolest logo ever. It's like just genius. Anyway, the, the report is really good and it's making the rounds on LinkedIn now with a lot of kind of serious people sharing it saying, Hey, like this is, and when you have collabs like this with institutions that are very well respected, the weight of reports like this, you know, is significant. And so, yeah, I mean, like they're already doing their green initiative. They're already have plans to sort of make things more sustainable. They have a target for being net zero, but this is just a reminder that they need to do this stuff now instead of waiting for later when it's too late. So congrats to Michelle and, and her team, and then the Capstark and Coust people as well, just good for them. And this is, this is really good. So I'm glad we ended on this one too, because this is, this is really good. I just want to close out, you know, that Middle East and North Africa climate week, um, Saudi really took advantage of that as a platform. Cause you know, you recall we, and we did, we covered it. They, they did the announcement of 10 billion trees, planting 10 billion trees. They did the announcement of that huge conservation area, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, sort of re, re-establishing uh endangered species and that sort of thing anyway it's uh it wasn't it wasn't just for show it, it, you know some interesting policies and platforms and initiatives came out of there mm -hmm. i think that puts a bow on it 
Mr. Wilson, a really good one. We need to get going. These are awesome. Yeah, <laughs> um, but these are these are really good. And um, you know, we've got 109 coming up next week. We uh, are just gonna start really. We've always been kind of on a roll. We're just on a constant roll. We're constantly climbing up the mountain that gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> but <Well>, you know, <laughs> it is nice to be able to. And here we are. What do you, what would what do you think your Peloton handle would be? I don't you know. know. Luke something, you know. Yeah, Luke my, my, my Instagram up. is at Lucian Ziegler. So you can, uh, that's what I use for everything. There are no other Lucian Zigglers in no, the United you, States. You, you, you'd one. have to have a, you know, a trainer's really, you know, pump it up name. But anyway, we can work on that later. Yes. Step one is acquiring a Peloton, which is not in the plan um, <laughs> at all. So no, what I was going to say, you know, to hark back to your very uplifting uh discussion is that it is nice that we've started the up the mountain and that we actually have gained a little bit of altitude and can look back at 109 episodes and be proud of them. Yep. hundred percent. And actually I think we are a little bit surprised at how far up we went and we took a look back at the growth of this thing. It's kind of cool. So we mentioned it a lot, but thanks to everybody. Thanks to our guests this week. We'll be back next week.